Yai dai di dai dai di dai dai di dai di dai dai di dai dai di dai 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 di dai di di dai 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 di dai 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 Shalom, shalom, friends. Great to see you. Thank you so much for being here. Very excited to tap into session 10 with you today. Mary Wollstonecraft, number 26. We made it, a woman. <laughs> we um, we went backwards in time. Um in our series uh, to be sure to get this one in. Let's start with a poll before we jump in. On women and men, men and women are almost totally the same, physically, cognitively, emotionally. Men and women are very different, physically, cognitively, emotionally. I know there's many more options than that, but if you had to choose between those two, um, which would you choose for, which would you choose? Split 50-50. I'd be interested in seeing the gender breakdown on the vote. 50% think men and women are totally, uh, almost totally the same, physically, cognitively, emotionally. 50% think women and men are very different, physically, cognitively, emotionally. Very interesting. Okay, this will emerge in our conversation today. A recorded philosophy is primarily a history of men. Only as we approach modernity do we begin to see women enter the record. Mary Wollstonecraft will be the first woman covered in the series. Her prescient feminism, self-taught brilliance, and complex personal life, and untimely death all contribute to her mythology. Wollstonecraft also offers us an opportunity to think about how Jewish tradition overlaps and departs from early feminist thinking. Born in 1759 in London, England, Mary Wollstonecraft was the daughter of a farmer. Like any girl of the era, her education was limited though it was enough that she was able to work as a schoolteacher, governess, and even translator. In her brief 38 years of life, Wollstonecraft, largely self-taught, being denied access to higher education as a woman, wrote several books concerning the education of women and girls, as well as a novel. Her most influential work was A Vindication of the Rights of Women, published in, published in 1792, which calls for the men and women to be equally educated. Despite the power and almost prophetic nature of her writing, which I'll get to shortly, it must be noted that Wollstonecraft is often talked about as a tragic and scandalous figure. Many people know more about her personal life than they do about her philosophical contributions. Much is made of the fact that she had a child out of wedlock. This was in 1794 when she lived with an American general during the French Revolution. When the love affair soured, she attempted suicide. Others note that she was pregnant with another child when she married William Godwin. In a true tragedy, she died 11 days after giving birth. That child was Mary Shelley, whose fame would in time come to outstrip her mother's. And yet the tragedies and so-called scandals of Wollstonecraft's life 
are only part of the story. Consider that as a woman, she was barred from the university. In fact, it would not be until 70 years after her death that the first woman would be admitted to university in Britain, when nine women were admitted to the University of London. So the fact is that Wollstonecraft, without access to the platforms of learning or scholarship that she so deserved, and without any kind of meaningful tradition of female scholarship to build on, managed to leave a lasting mark on Western philosophy. That her contributions are overshadowed by her personal life must be understood as misogynistic. After all, many male philosophers have had deeply scandalous personal lives, and yet their ideas are examined in their own right. We do not begin each discussion of Nietzsche or Schopenhauer, for example, by emphasizing that both men had syphilis. Instead, we, priv we privilege their formidable, formidable philosophical contributions over their complicated personal lives. We can see, therefore, that in life and in death, Wollstonecraft has not gotten a fair shape. Let's see what we can do about that. Mary Wollstonecraft was a British philosopher, women's rights advocate, and one of the founders of modern feminism. She was deeply influenced by the work of Enlightenment thinker John Locke, which is to say she placed reason above all else. In Locke's understanding, men have God-given rights discoverable by reason. In Wollstonecraft's view, women also have these rights because reason is available to them. Simply put, because women, like men, have reason, they should have freedom. Today, we might feel uncomfortable with the idea that of the idea that of reason as a prerequisite for participating in civil life. We would never accept a society in which differently abled people were barred from basic rights, for example. That said, of course we do, there are many states where severe mental disabilities would cause one, for example, to lose the right to vote. And we may have different views on that. At the time, Wollstonecraft's arguments that anyone other than men deserved rights were considered deeply radical. That Wollstonecraft arrived at such revolutionary feminist ideas without any substantive history of women's rights to build on speaks to her irrepressible brilliance. Wollstonecraft did support voting rights for women in theory. In A Vindication of the Rights of Women, she wrote, I really think that women ought to have representatives instead of being arbitrarily governed without having any direct share allowed them in the deliberations of government. However, she acknowledged that it made sense that women were denied basic freedoms, including the right to vote, because women's minds remained weak from a lack of education. Having the right to vote and participate in society, she reasoned, requires being informed, which is to say educated. Therefore, it was the ways that women and girls were and were not educated that made them fit for little, little else but subjugation. She writes, Women are told from their infancy and taught by example of their mothers that a little knowledge of human weakness, justly termed cunning, softness of temper, outward obedience, and a scrupulous attention to a puerile kind of propriety will obtain for them the protection of man. And should they be beautiful, everything else is needless for at least 20 years of their lives. No wonder women are obsessed with their beauty. It is all they have been taught. In the societal instruction that Wollstonecraft lived in, a woman's only source of power was to be in the gaze of men. For women, power cannot come from wisdom or even virtue. Her solution most famously outlined in A Vindication of the Rights of Women, but also visible in her earlier work, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters in 1787, 
is a complete reform of the education such that boys and girls are educated equally. In her writing, you can feel her passion, her frustration, and even her wit. My own sex, I hope, will excuse me if I treat them like rational creatures instead of flattering their fascinating graces and viewing them as if they were in a state of perpetual childhood, unable to stand alone. She notes that it's not just women who are enslaved to the limitations of the education system of the day, but also that many men are hurt by it. She writes, we may instance the example of military men who are like them sent into the world before their minds have been stored with knowledge or fortified by principles. The consequences are similar. Soldiers acquire, acquire a little superficial knowledge snatched from the muddy current of conversation. Her observations seem to anticipate the centuries later discussion of so-called toxic masculinity and the ways in which it's harmful not just to women, but also to men. For Wollstonecraft, as for Locke, by the way, education is the key to create active, informed citizens and even morality. Her suggested reforms were way ahead of their time, including the envisioning of a national educational system in which boys and girls learned in mixed classrooms. Despite her incredible foresight, only recently has Wollstonecraft begun to get her due in terms of her influence on feminism. For two centuries, she was dismissed on account of her personal life. Even today, as she's getting the renewed attention and respect she deserves, there's, there's no significant memorial to her anywhere in England or abroad. Someone who never doubted Wollstonecraft's legacy was her own daughter, Mary Shelley, the very same who went on to write the hugely influential book, Frankenstein. Frownly, profoundly affected by her mother's philosophy, the younger Mary wrote, the memory of my mother has always been the pride and delight of my life. It is said that Mary Shelley learned the alphabet by tracing the letters on her mother's grave. We know for a fact that Mary Shelley read all of her mother's work several times and even wrote about the pressure she felt to rise to her mother's talent. In a way, it's a comfort that in Mary Shelley, one of the great writers of the English language, we see some of Mary Wollstonecraft's vision for women's education coming to life. Some of Wollstonecraft's writings reflect a historical reality in Judaism. After all, from the time of the Talmud, Jewish leaders have been arguing against giving women a religious education comparable to that of men, as well as ac access to our sacred texts. In the Talmud, the rabbis expound on Deuteronomy 11:19, and you shall teach your sons to conclude that we are commanded only to teach Torah to boys and men, not to girls and women. Elsewhere, some rabbis go beyond stating that women are not obligated to learn Torah and say they are in fact barred from it. From, from Tractate Sota, Rabbi Eliezer says, anyone who teaches his daughter Torah is teaching her tiflut. The word I have left untranslated here, tiflut, is a notable one. It's sometimes translated as promiscuity, but a truer translation might be frivolity or trivialness. Some say this probation comes from the idea that teaching a daughter the halakha on forbidden sexual acts might, in the words of Rabbi Marcus Jastro, ex excite her sensu sensuality. In the Talmud Yerushalmi, in the Jerusalem Talmud version of Sota, Rabbi Eliezer speaks even more shockingly, let the words of Torah be burnt rather than handed over to women. In his commentary on Sota, 
Rashi, Rashi expounds that the fear is that women will learn cunning from Torah and pursue immoral matters. The Rambam returns to the word tiflut, translating it as worthless words. The suggestion here seems to be that the so-called weakness of women's minds will actually distort the meaning of Torah itself. Any feminist will find it painful and alienating to read these passages from our tradition. We might also hear echoes of what Wollstonecraft described what she noted, that she noted that a, a lack of education made women of her time unfit for political life. So too, in the time of the rabbis, barring women from the Beit, Midra from the Beit Midrash became a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Women were considered weak-minded, so they were barred from Torah study. And being barred from Torah study made them unable to understand discussions of Torah, which justified them from being debarred from Torah study, and so on. Wollstonecraft would say that women of the time were not fundamentally inferior, but rather that the lack of a systemic pathway education limited, to, limited the development of their abilities when it came to Torah and commentary. She would no doubt be heartened to learn that today we are moving toward more equality when it comes to access to, to Jewish learning. A shining example comes from Rabbah Sarah Hurwitz, who's pictured here. Rabbah comes from her choice to feminize the word rabbi. Ordained in 2009, she's the co-founder of Yeshivat Maharat, an open Orthodox institution, the first Orthodox yeshiva to ordain women as, as clergy. Here, women have the opportunity to study Talmud and depths of halakha as in any yeshiva for, for men uh, on a traditional level. But examples of female Jewish sages go as far back in the Talmud go far back in the Talmud, most famously to Bruria, the wife of Rabbi Meir. She is cited in the Talmud as making fierce, incisive arguments. In, ta in the Tractate of, ta of Brachot, for example, she corrects her husband by citing Psalms correctly. Like Wollstonecraft, she was a woman scholar without a model for what she was doing. And like Wollstonecraft, she had a tragic personal life. Rashi relates the uncomfortable story of her suicide in his commentary on Avodah Zarah. But unlike Wollstonecraft, Bruria was, was granted the respect she deserved. In the Talmud, she's quoted among the best. In the 20th and 21st centuries, women have increasingly breathed new life into Jewish tradition. Take, for example, the liberal Jewish feminist, Professor Judith Plaskow, who famously wrote a midrash on Genesis about Adam's two wives, L Lilith and Eve. In her version, Eve and Lilith form a sisterly bond that exposes the patriarchal structures woven into Judaism. This is someone whose Judaism and feminism are deeply intertwined. In the introduction to Standing Again at Sinai, she wrote, I'm not a Jew in the synagogue and a feminist in the world. I am a Jewish feminist and a feminist Jew in every moment of my life. Plaskow certainly sees feminist Judaism as operating outside of rabbinic Judaism. For a Jewish feminist who makes a place for herself within the context of traditional Jewish thought, we might look at the feminist biblical scholar Tamar Ross, a professor of Jewish theology at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. That, um, and she's been very quiet in the last year since her husband passed away. Um, she should continue to be comforted. She's a great scholar. Dr. Ross has dedicated her life to correcting the invisibility of women in Jewish thought. She argues that women have unique experiences and frameworks that often have been overlooked by scholars. In assuming the pr prevailing division of gender roles is correct and natural, and basing research on questions that were originally formulated only by men, 
scholars often missed much of what was distinctive about women's experiences. Here she, we see her pointing out a cycle of exclusion and invisibility that was so apparent to Wollstonecraft. A place where Jewish thought might depart from Wollstonecraft is her emphasis on reason, namely that political rights should primarily be premised on the capacity to reason. Instead, we can argue that rights are inherent to every person, man and woman. Nobody is subject is subject to an entry fee of reason. Indeed, Selim Elohim, the Jewish belief that we are all made in God's image, goes way deeper than the capacity to reason. It's in our very souls. Torah is very clear that when we stood at Sinai and accepted the breach, the covenants with God, it was not just men who were present, but men, women, and children. When we make Jewish discourse available to all Jews, we are all richer for it. It's not only women and women who benefit from inclusion. Men get access to new forms of wisdom, and individuals who do not identify as men or women, but who occupy space along the broad non-binary spectrum of gender identity, are also free to bring their wisdom to our learning. In this way, we may be moving towards the future that Wollstonecraft dreamed of, one in which education is within anyone's reach. Okay, friends, would love to um, hear from you. As we will see in later feminists, um, 20th century and 21st century, they will take different approaches from Wollstonecraft. Nonetheless, we can um, deeply admire her pioneering work in the early years. So would love to open up the conversation. I don't know how I got through all that in 19 minutes. Okay, Eileen, hi. Okay, so I could not help but be astounded the fact that she says politicians should be rational thinkers. And all I could think of was, where are these politicians who are rational thinkers? In this day and age, it's almost as though if you are a logical, rational being, you're excluded from being in politics. Well, um, so that's that's very interesting. Yeah, Aglaia, uh, um, Eileen, very interesting point, and Aglaia, interesting comment on what is, what is rational. Um, and the question is, who is to blame for that? Is it the politicians or is it the society? Um, what we know is that um, politicians have, uh, those who are well-funded at least, have very sophisticated teams behind them as to the emotional um, buttons they need to press um, to speak to their base, to, to survive. So take somebody like um, Ron DeSantis, who's a very smart and well-educated person, but speaks like a child because he, he's speaking to a base that wants a certain articulation. Um, and there's many other examples like that. One of the great critiques of Obama was that Obama spoke too much like a professor, um, that people didn't like when he spoke sophisticated language like a teacher, that he he lost people and they thought that, that he was detached from the common person when he'd speak like that. So they would tell him to tone it down. He was constantly being advised to tone it because he was a professor. And so you're right. Um, there's 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 no lack of, of, um, of unsophisticated thought among political people. And sometimes it's because of who we elevate and we don't, there's, we can create a long list of those people. And sometimes it's because they're being advised to speak like that, which is also kind of interesting. Um, 
The same thing happens, by the way, in rabbi school. They tell every rabbi, don't talk like a philosopher when you give a sermon, right? Touch people's hearts. Um, tell them stories that's going to touch their hearts. I was worried about this own class series because in our, our kindness series, um, we told lots of stories and it was very kind of, the idea was to be emotionally uh, arousing um, towards kindness. And this is kind of a different series. Like I'm not telling stories. I'm not tapping into emotionally evocative moments. This is really exploring the world of philosophy. And I was worried if, you know, we would, you know, if, if I would lose my friends here. So, um, but nonetheless, I'm committed to multiple approaches of how we think about these issues together. And well, just one last step before I lean to go back to you, um, um, tapping into my, my friend Ed here as well. In the world of Musar, this is one of the great questions as well. Like, how does human behavioral change work through the realm of reason? And how does it work through the affective realm of emotion? And how does it work through behavioral conditioning? If I am committed today to being a better person, what pathway am I committing in that character development work? Am I reading more and thinking more critically about difficult moral issues? Am I trying to um, um, arouse my immoral imagination um, for um, my, my moral capacity? Am I listening to inspiring stories that help me think about, about how I can actualize my potential? Am I conditioning myself behaviorally? And it's a great question. And um, about how we how we grow, how we grow. I lean back to you because I think you were going to respond. Yeah, um, I want to go back to your poll. Are men and women different? And I would say, yeah, scientifically now, even though scientists have based the majority of their studies on men, they're starting to study women and are discovering that we women have a lot of things that men don't have. Great. So you're tapping into something very interesting we'll get to later in feminist thought. This Going back to our poll question, are women um, very much fundamentally similar with men or very much fundamentally different? And in early feminist thinkers, the idea was, we are the same, we are the same. And in later feminist thinkers, it was building on difference. Of course, there's lots of nuance in there. But much more this idea of, yes, equal rights, but let's tap into unique women's wisdom, right? Because women know know things in different ways. There's different ways of knowing. Going to um, uh, Gilligan, Carol Gilligan, and and once again, her critique of, of uh, Kohlberg in the way that actually women know things morally different from how men need, know things. Now, this is a very hot topic because... Many women find offensive the idea that men and women know things differently. Other people say, no, women actually fundamentally are superior in our ways of knowing. And those are those are not conditioned. Those are inherent. Right. And so it's a great it's a great topic to continue to explore and very controversial. If you remember, um, if you remember a big uh, controversy that emerged in Harvard about 10 years ago, it was around why are there less women in in the in the in the math and science fields, and according to um, according to some, um, it was okay that more men were being admitted because men had a, a, a higher cognitive capacity to do those fields. And according to um, you know, and according to others, this um, this was horrific, and the admissions need to be completely equal um, between men and women, um, even if the the applicants for, for from women were less qualified than 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 the men. 
And th there was a raging debate that's great to follow. And Larry Summers was the president of Harvard at the time. And Stephen Pinker was involved in that. It's, and, I, and I'd love to hear people's thoughts on that. Anyways, Eileen, thanks for ringing. Just before we move on, Lauren, um, maybe as you start your comment, you can tell me what MTG means. Excuse my ignorance. You wrote in the chat MTG, and I don't know what that means. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, okay. I had to yeah. say that. I couldn't okay. help, but I'm waiting for my laser. I've yet to receive it. Um, just think what we could do with it now. Um, just in mentioning, as you're mentioning, you know, studying Torah's like Chief Lutz and all that. I, uh, years ago, I took a fantastic class in the development of halakha towards women's learning and in general. And it's amazing how it went from that to, you know, when the, the um, Beit Yaakov schools came out. I mean, that was radical, right? Now we think of Beit Yaakov as, well, that's a pretty conservative kind of teaching, but it was very radical. But we've gone from that to women studying Chumash Tanakh to now women learning Talmud and Gemara to women getting like Orthodox Smicha from Maharat, from Midrash at Lindenbaum. So, you know, we've, we've seen tremendous progress through to both male and, um, and female Jewish thinkers. So I just wanted to mention that. Great. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, we might think of like, other movements getting this long ago, but we're, the truth is we're only a few decades out from the, the reform movement ordaining Rabbi Sally Presand, you know, um, and the conservative movement, you know, ordaining Rabbi um, Amy Eilberg and the Orthodox movement ordaining um, Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz. All of these movements are just in recent decades. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, you tapped into base Yaakov Beis Yaakov is a movement of Haredi, meaning ultra-Orthodox uh, um, girls' schools, schools for girls, started by Sarah Schneerer in post-World War I and founded on Torah learning. Now, they didn't do Talmud learning. That comes later, but, but rigorous Torah learning as well. And this is just so important for Jewish thought. Now, of course, Orthodoxy, by and large, in terms of leadership, still tends to be a boys' club for the most part. And the reform movement tends to be a girls' club. Um, the feminization of the reform movement that gets eight, um, seven, eight, or nine, uh, to, well, eight to two or nine to one, oftentimes interest in programs from girl leaders over boy leaders and the like. And so orthodox, modern orthodoxy is struggling with how do we get more women empowered? And the reform movement is struggling with how do we get boys empowered? Because they don't want to be a part of it. And, and even the rabbinical schools that are getting less men applying to rabbinical school. Only women want to be reformed rabbis because of the kind of what's called the feminization of the reformed rabbinate. And it's sort of an interesting to see these trends and how they're playing out so differently um, right now. And um, in any case, yeah, Lauren, I appreciate um, your point. And it's really been a revolution. And in Israel, in, in Israel especially, I mean, the number of women's learning institutions in Israel is just through the roof of high, higher level learning that puts American institutions to shame. I mean, you can, might be able to find you know, a handful of higher level learning, but the seminaries and, and, and yeshivas in, in Israel that are doing this, and not only the religious ones, also the secular ones, you may be aware that there is a secular movement of 
Jewish learning that has kind of emerged in the last, you know, two decades um, in, in Tel Aviv, where people say, look, I'm an atheist. I don't, I'm not traditional. I don't observe or practice, but the Talmud is my tradition too. And I want to study it and engage in it. And, and that's kind of an interesting phenomenon that's happening as well. So, um, Lauren, thank you for that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Gary Fiedler, great. Thank you. I happen to agree with uh, Elaine, uh, being in the healthcare uh, field that men and women are structurally different. Uh, that's well documented. And I think they think different uh, for a variety of reasons that we could go on forever and ever. And I think they bring different things to the table uh, than men do. Uh, and I think that's only a positive, not not a negative. But uh, I wanted to, to ad address, uh, well, where'd she go? I always forget her name. Uh, Lauren's point and your point about about uh, women becoming ultra, uh, involved in, orth uh, not in orthodoxy, uh, but in reform Judaism. And you see a movement in orthodoxy. Uh, and what I want to say, it may be a little controversial, but having been exposed a lot to orthodoxy, as well as conservative Judaism, where there's a lot of women uh, rabbis, that as much as in the past we've seen everything from the eyes of a man, that uh, we now, or in my opinion, have seen a lot of uh, women rabbis uh, that bring everything to the table from a woman's perspective and not in between. Uh, so we swung from one side over the years, and now we swung to the other because obviously men think different and women think different. Uh, and I would like to see if you're going to uh, bring women into the fold, and I think that's wonderful, that they also have to understand as rabbinic leaders that not everybody is a woman. I, I'm a man. And uh, there has to be, I think, that happy medium uh, just like, the, you know, everything now in the progressive movement has gone so far to the left that they've kind of forgot about the middle. And it, and I see that uh, from a woman's perspective, or at least as a congregant uh, 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 sitting in, in a minion or sitting in shul. Uh, so that's one. Two, uh, other thing I want to mention, last week we ended up, the last thing I think uh, we discussed was, as knowledge changes, do truths change? And I think we, we mentioned that. So as knowledge has moved on forward about women and what they bring to the table is, is important. Uh, why, why haven't we really seen that change in truth uh, uh, or have we seen a change in truth, especially in orthodoxy? Though I see you see these little movements moving, moving uh, more forward. Majority of orthodoxy does not believe in that. Uh, I have many friends in orthodoxy from modern orthodox to Haredi, and, and they're very much stuck in, in what the Torah and Talmud and those commentaries uh, have, to, have to say, and they still live their lives in a truly man's world. So that's my opinion. <laughs> thanks, Gary. Um, thanks for sharing all that. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave all that open for others who want to engage with some of the directions Gary's uh, going here. And um, yeah, and, and I think um, it's, it, it is important for us to think about just how differently we all think. And only one of those pieces is gender um, uh, and, you know, and sex. Um, we all, um, different races and different socioeconomic backgrounds and different upbringings, different um, genetic dispositions, different memories, traumas and glories. 
there are so many factors that uh, lead us to think differently. And it's so easy, ethnicities, religions, and it's so easy to think when we're talking to people that they're kind of processing the same as us. And that's one of the great things about being in relationship where there's kind of some trust is to identify just how differently we think about things. And so um, uh, there are people who want to, you know, kind of um, reduce things to binaries as if, you know, all Democrats think like this and Republicans think like this and all men think like this and women think like this. And we are just such complex human beings. And that's what makes learning in groups so fascinating because our perspectives are so rich and diverse. So, yeah. So, Gary, thanks for that. And, and I hope others will jump in. Aglaia, over to you. OK, so we have managed in this time to say four names that were triggers for me. OK, so we started with, OK, yeah, it went from Ron DeSantis to Trump to Marjorie Taylor Greene to Larry Summers. And so, yeah. OK, so anyway, though, but here's the thing. All right. Everyone who's like, OK, just well, first of all, the poll at the beginning of class kind of. um. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to choose either of those options, to be honest. I kind of was like, nope, I don't really want, I don't like either of these options. I went with basically almost the same, though, because of the reason why, and here's the reason why. You can make all kinds of cases for women that like, fundamentally think differently than men because of, okay, biological differences and blah, 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 blah. But then, okay, so if you're a trans woman, are you now, like, did you somehow, like, you know, start off biologically male and then become, get all of that biologically female stuff, like, pumped into you when they, like, Major, you know, major tra transition. Or if you are a trans man, do you bring that, you know, like biologically determined, you know, whatever knowledge as a woman into being a man? Or if you are non-binary, now there are precedents for um, societies that believe that if you are intersex or non-binary, you are automatically also, you know, given like predisposed to wisdom that most people are not predisposed to. So, I mean, we've been having this like, you know, okay, this debate for like forever, like since the beginning of time. So I don't know. I mean, if you are intersex, are you really like, you know, just predisposed to wisdom? Are you woman? If you are become a man, if you are, you know, your firm gender is male. So did you lose that wisdom when you, be, you know, like, were you not born with it somehow? because your affirmed gender is going to be male. I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of like looking at this and I'm kind of like, mm, yeah, we're getting into some interesting territory here and I'm not 100% sure. And at Mary Wollstonecraft's time, they were going to assume male versus female. I mean, to be honest with you, okay, there was a lot of thought like back in the day when I was in college that, oh yeah, male versus female. But a lot has been, a lot has changed since then. So how do we necessarily know? I don't know. I'm just kind of not convinced by, but then I'm always saying I'm not convinced. So maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks, Aglaia. Um, and I see that Sarah's ready to jump in also, but I appreciate you, you know, shaking things up with our assumptions as well. Um, you know, these are, of course, complicated matters. And, and, um, and, and whatever we do conclude, um, as to whether we think there's minimal or maximal differences, how do we ensure that whatever we come down with enables the highest level of dignity for the other, rather than um, in any ways, you know, reducing someone? Um, because it's easy to come to a conclusion that, you know, limits another person's rights and freedoms and whatever we think, because there's nothing inherently right or moral or immoral about thinking about differences of people, right? But how do we ensure those differences um, move us to a place of empowerment and freedom rather than limiting. 
So yeah, Aglaia, thank you. Sarah, hi. Hi. So um, I'm supporting Aglaia in that the fetus is, they're all female. And it isn't until later in development, in the interuterine development, that testosterone then begins to change the genitalia to form the male when that happens. I also really struggle with this binary notion that we're one or the other. And when I read that question, I was stumped in your poll originally, because it's true and it's not true. It's, it's all of that, that culturally, those of us who have been born female or have chosen that role are treated in a particular manner in any given culture. And what that looks like is determined by the culture, whether we're educated, whether our mind is developed, whether we're told at an early age, you can't do math. Um, I just, I remember so many strange insults through my childhood of, you know, the teacher saying, oh, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna coach all these boys so that that girl won't beat them. Or standing outside my chemistry professor's door and hearing him say to another student, well, I wish I could give you the top prize. I'm sorry, because I got it. You know, like, what, what is that about? It's culturation. And so just the question of what, what we are capable of, who we are capable of becoming and being is a mystery. It's not determined except often by our culture. I'm complete. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. And um, this is one of the great works of all liberation movements, um, but certainly of, of Jewish liberation work, I think, to think about how the potential of every being, of every person can be actualized and not be limited. And we're gonna see that actually in Martha Nussbaum later, her work on um, thinking about um, capabilities and uh, maximizing people's capabilities. And it's worth us also thinking about, just thinking about our own character for a moment. <clears throat> Whenever we're talking to people each day, what language do we choose that enables them to flourish more versus in some way limit them? And there's some subtle ways we might not always realize um, that we use language um, to limit others and their potential. Um, and how do we, um, you know, rethink that? Um, because the, the number of people who've been pressed down, um, Jews, people of color, women, I mean, the list goes on and on, um, who have been pressed down because they were deemed to be fundamentally inferior. And one of the things we're going to see later in post-modernity is post-essentialism, moving away from the idea that people have an essence. Um, we'll see how kind of traditional Jewish thought engages with that. But the notion that people um, are of a certain type um, and have a certain structure inherent to them. 
Um, but that's going to get really complicated later. The, these these early these early modern thinkers aren't even going near that stuff yet. I guess I'm going to give a, a slightly different perspective on this, but uh, I definitely want to preface it by saying this is only my truth. And that's where I sort of start from is that I have my truth as opposed to maybe a truth that's beyond my comprehension, which is what I consider to be God's or the, tr the real truth, which I use capital letters to say that's the truth, but it's beyond my comprehension. And then there's this group in the middle, huge group that says they're you know, bound together, if you will, by a truth that the group believes in, but it might differ from another group. So you may have a number of these groups, in fact you do, in religion, in politics, in social economic structures and everything else. So I got involved in this in a volunteer organization that was mainly women and they wanted me to discuss with them the divine feminine. And this was when feminism was kind of big. So I uh, decided to decline, um, but it sort of stuck with me because I kept running into this issue, the, the term divine feminine. And so I somehow had to factor this into my truth. Now, it isn't necessarily Christian because that's in the group. It's, it's just strictly mine. So I want to make sure that everybody understands that. So what it came down to, and particularly in discussion with some, uh, a Lutheran pastor, a woman Lutheran pastor, and a minister, she was a uh, hospital chaplain in a small town. Uh, one was Catholic, one was Lutheran. And in my discussions with them, we came to the kind of conclusion, if you will, that we are all created in God's image. Now, that might, you know, the, the definition of that might differ, but we came to the conclusion that we all have divine feminine, divine masculine, the truth, but we might not understand it. So we are born with this or we are conceived with this. What makes us different is there are physical, you know, things like this, but it's the environment, your experiences and your knowledge, your learned knowledge that differ. So even though I grew up in America and the United States, my parents both were born in the United States. My grandparents immigrated from Japan. The objective was to assimilate. Now I know that's kind of a bad term, but that was the marching orders. We had to assimilate. We even moved out of areas where there were mainly Japanese. Um, and that went actually okay for me until the 1960s. 
And then we had a major change in just about everything got turned upside down uh, from Vatican II um, to civil rights that peaked in 1965 to obviously the Vietnam War and then the political uh, issues that occurred with Watergate and so forth. Um, and that basically then got me into this I don't know what the truth is. Um, and in fact, I barely know what the truth is in the groups around, but it would be to my advantage to listen and learn so that if I were to ever enter into conversation with somebody, I'd better find out first where they sat with their, their truth and their group's truth. Um, and so I'd have to listen to both the pros and cons, if you will. And then I would come up with my truth, which probably means that I won't even attempt to make that or push that onto somebody else as much as, as Musar would say, you've got to live it, just live it. Maybe you become an example, but it's difficult enough to go out there every week under Musar and practice humility, loving kindness. Um, so for me, it was sort of a truth for me to, to figure out and then practice it. Beautiful, Ed, that, that, that's so powerful. Um, and you know, two, two things I'm taking away from what you said. One is um, our, total breakdown of capacity in society these days to listen, um, the spiritual practice of listening, um, that we've we've selected that there's a very small select group of people we actually want to listen to, and everyone else is not worth listening to. Um, but that, that humility and that ability to hold a lot of different truths and a lot of different perspectives, hold it compassionately and gracefully and with humility. But then your next step, Ed, is, feels to me just as important that even while we're holding all those multiple truths that we're hearing from other people articulate, we then affirm our own truth and we live with it because that is, um, there's an integrity in that, not just being able to hold all those truths, but being able to actually affirm our own and live with integrity with our own truth as well. So I appreciate you, um, you bringing that to life for us in your own Musar practice. And that, that works as well here. Um, I've always, I've always been a little bit, you know, um, you know, felt that there's something limited to, to men who only want to work, learn with men and women who only want to learn with women, um, you know, and, and many other things like that. People, Orthodox Jews who only want to learn with Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews who only want to learn with Reformed Jews and, and on and on. The sense that, like, we kind of want to be in a space only where we're going to hear what we already kind of know. As that relates to also with the divine truth. And how we think of gender with the divine, you know, as Mary, as Mary Daly famously said, if God is a man, then man is God. Um, and so that critique also of how we use theology responsibly. And going back to the creation story, we see there's kind of some um, uh, different perspectives. Let me share my screen for a moment. So if you go to the um, Midrash of Genesis Rabbah, it says, Rabbi Yirmiya ben Elazar taught, 
when the Holy One created Adam, God created Adam as an androgynous person. As it is written, male and female, God created them. Said Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman, when the Holy One created Adam, God created him with two faces and split him and made him two spines, a spine here and a spine there. So the rabbis think that one idea of how creation happened was actually an androgynous being that contained all of gender and was then split, you know, apart. The Zohar continues here. Male and female, God created them. And when they were created, God blessed them and called them Adam, human. Come and see. With the secret by which heaven and earth were created, Adam was created. Come and see. Anywhere where male and female are not found as one, the Holy One does not place God's abode. One is not even called Adam unless male and female are as one. So that's very interesting that what the Zohar is saying something really radical here. To actually be a human, you need to contain the male and female within you, right? That is what makes us human, is the ability to return to that original being of creation and hold all of that together. Now, whether we think that's essential, that I am in my soul, male and female, or whether we think as Edison, that's learning perspectives. I'm going to hold male perspectives and female perspectives, whatever those may be, right, uh, you know, together. Right. This idea of what it means to actualize our humanity as being genderful rather than genderless. Now, that's not a critique of those who want to be genderless in the nine binary word. There's those world. There's those people who want um, to be genderless. And there's those people who want to be genderful. So, too, with God, um, there are people who want God to be very gendered. God as male and God as female speaks to them deeply. And there's people who want to degender God, um, that God is not male or female or gendered at all. And those are both worth playing with. I don't, I want to suggest that like, there's not a moral stance and an immoral stance here, right? We can play with these ideas and, um, and find what is meaningful to us. As Ed said so well, like live our truth in a way that's going to bring us closer to um, our own actualization. So Ed, thank you for that. I was actually just going to mention that um, there's um, a podcast I was listening to um, from Real Life Science, where they actually go deeper into that and talk about how uh, in the womb, we all are technically women. Um, so we all start off as women, every single one of us. So there's like um, parts of that that they talked about, like, how do you tie into your and then like it moved into a little bit more of like spiritual practice but like how do you tie into like your internal like feminine um parts that can help you develop a, a new sense of of thought and 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 compassion and then they also talked about how um like data shows that women have a faster age of of cognitive development um and how like science now is looking at trying to develop to see where at what point does that compare with men and uh, like what is like why is that happening so i thought that was interesting that you also brought it into into faith um that at our at our coreness of where we we are starting to develop we are, we start uh andromedas and we aren't we we really have no gender um and then we be, we start off as women and then we develop either into males or females um, yeah, thank you, Eddie. And um, thinking about that, and and it's worth in 
um, I'm sure we've all done this before, but thinking a little bit before, um, you know, <laughs> continuing to think about um, our early experiences in life and how that formed our own our own um, uh, sense of the positivity or negativity of gender itself, uh, ways that we felt shamed as girls or excluded, ways we felt shamed as boys as being told we're kind of wild beasts, you know, um, you know, and so how do how were we told that we are something because we were boys or because we were girls or however we identified? And how does that continue to inform how we think of ourselves uh, today? And what type of discourse is generative today that we want to foster, you know, um, around around gender in ways that are going to um, bring people together and feel safe to talk about these things and be empowering and not shut people out? So let me pause there to see who else wants to jump in now. Gary, good. Gary Gartsman, yeah. Hi, yeah, hi group. Yeah, so I'd like to make a, a shout out just for VBM and, and all of us uh, gathered here today. I was just looking at my notes about uh, Mary and what she talked about, uh, equality of rational human beings, uh, gender equality, supporting education for women, argued for women's rights, and probably speaking for all of us, I was struck how amazingly, you know, unoriginal, unshocking uh, this was until you transport yourself back 300 years. And I think that's one of the great benefits I get from uh, these sessions is that, that ability to time transport and put myself back into thinking how shocking these ideas must have been, you know, to hurt or society or relationships. And I think it's just a, a wonderful thing that helps all of us. Awesome. Thank you for that. And um, one of the things I, that I love about our time together is that we partially are in our own moment today, um, November 7th, 2023, and everything that's morally charged today but we also look to future continuity and we look to the past and we look at things in their own context and, um, you know, um, and, and see how radical ideas were in their own time, even if they might seem so obvious to, to us today. So I appreciate you sharing that. And for us to offer some respect to these thinkers, you know, even when, you know, some of them, you know, did some, you know, some might have ideas we don't appreciate or did some things <laughs> we certainly don't agree with, but to understand that like, one of the great wars today is just between people who want to engage in thought and those who don't. And um, just being aligned with philosophers, the fact that they want to think critically about life and meaning and, and ethics, even if we disagree with their conclusions. Um, and to have been such a brave woman to have stood up at this time and um, and pushed back. And um, I mean, it's it's almost impossible for us to imagine the kind of pressures, you know, uh, that would be against a person like that, that you demonize for such things. So thank you, uh, Gary Gartsman, for that. You, Gary Friedlander, yeah. I, having listened here, I think we're, we're pretty much uh, all in the same way, like that we've made huge strides in uh, in this in society of equality. Uh, but I'm curious, what's your thoughts on why we see so much uh, emphasis on wanting to go backwards in some of the religious uh, world, be it, uh, be it, okay, be great, it evangelicalism, great. be it orthodoxy. Great, great. Yeah. You know, what, what's your thoughts on what, why is this happening? I, I'm so glad you said that because I want to offer a, um, a, charitable, a charitable viewpoint to what might 
be offensive to most of us. Um, I think there's a sense um, in the world today, um, I'm not going to say anything groundbreaking here, that um, we have abandoned some very fundamental values in the name of progress. And I'm sure to some degree we all agree with that, right? We all agree that in the name of progress, many things we cherish get trampled. Um, now, to what degree do we believe that? And to be sure, Jewish theology has a concept called Yerida Tadorot. As we get further from Sinai, we get further from truth. And one of the things that people um, in evangelical, in some segments of evangelical Christianity, in some segments of Orthodox Judaism, in some segments of conservative America, um, believe, certainly, um, you know, traditional Islam, um, is that one of the things that has been lost are gender roles. And that when those gender roles are broken, families are broken. Um, that that um, homes cannot function well without gender roles. Children can't be raised well without it. Divorce will be higher and higher and um, society will break. And that radical feminism, according to these you know, conservative uh, people, um, is a great threat to the most cherished values that are, will be trampled on. And uh, I'm sure we, many of us have counter arguments to that, but it's worth us thinking about that because we can just rage against it and be like, you sexist, but that's not gonna accomplish any goals that anyone has by just yelling that. And so if we wanna think like, huh, what is the fear that um, Orthodox Jews or evangelical Christians or traditional Muslims or conservative voters have for what's being lost? And how do we address that fear while also being an advocate for women's liberation? Um, that's that's an interesting conversation to have of how we can achieve that. And that's one of the things that's happening in kind of the progressive traditional spaces, like progressive Muslims or progressive Orthodox Jews or progressive evangelicals or progressive Catholics or the like. Um, and the Pope is in that category as well. The Pope is someone who is pushing for progress while trying to manage a global Catholicism, which is deeply committed to traditionalism. And so we see that playing out time and time again. And um, again, I think yelling at people that they're just racist and sexist and homophobes, there's a place for that. But there's another place where actually that sets it back because it pushes them further away from wanting to have any respect for people pushing for progress. And so our investing some time in trying to understand, and also when we're pushing for progress, how do we do it in a way that tries to honor those noble values that, that most humans also value as well, like family values. Why can only conservatives say, claim that moral high ground and caring about family values? Like for me, as an advocate for same-sex marriage, I view that as a, as a family value. <laughs> I'm pro-family values when I'm advocating for same-sex marriage, when I, you know, and so on and so on. So I know we're over time here. I'm sorry to go two minutes over. When we get to Simone de Beauvoir as well, and so many others, th th this conversation we're having now is going gonna, is gonna to continue. Yes, exactly. Who defines the role and, and how threatening it is when the power over position of a role is challenged? If only men determine what the gender roles are, then that's a corrupt institution fundamentally. If women and men are partners in identifying right, that there are different roles and those are not just limited to gender, although gender may be one of the conversations in it, for example... Should women have more time off for work when after having a baby because they want to nurse as opposed to a man who's not going to nurse? Some will say, yes, women should have more time off after having a baby. 
Some are going to say, no, men should be equal partners in taking that time off to care for the child and, and the like. And so these are great debates to have. Friends, we will see you for Husserl. Ah, next week, it's on Monday at 11, 11 Mountain. 